Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 22. And uh, we have uh, read the, the Scriptures. We have sung about the Scriptures. We now get the privilege of listening to the Scriptures again and to meditate upon them uh, as God's people this morning. So Acts chapter 22, I'm actually going to begin in verse 30. And we'll read down through chapter 23, verse 5. And uh, Paul is still in Jerusalem. He's uh, addressed the mob, the Jewish mob there that really want to kill him. He's been beaten already. He addressed them. And uh, obviously he had to be delivered. A riot broke out again. They were wanting to uh, really take him out and probably stone him to death. So the centurion stepped in and rescued him, brought him inside the uh, fortress of Antonio, was about ready to have him flogged to find out what's causing all the riot, all the disturbance among the Jews. And uh, Paul affirmed his citizenship rights that we looked at last week. And because of that, because a Roman, it was illegal to flog a Roman without him being accused and convicted by a trial, he was delivered from the punishment of being flogged. So again, our rights as a citizen are very much uh, something that Christians can stand on and seek. So now we pick it up in verse 30 of Acts chapter 22. And I'll begin reading. So as I read the Word of God, again, it's our great uh, joy to read the inspired Word that God has given to us for our edification. Verse 30, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders say, said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, this whole uh, passage raises some interesting questions in my mind. Uh, Should Christians speak out on issues that involve politics? Should we address leaders in the community that are breaking the law or violating some biblical moral stand? Or should Christians stay out of politics and focus only on the Great Commission, only on preaching the gospel, and keep silent on all political issues? Well, obviously... Some people have differing opinions upon that. But I think our passage this morning actually lends itself and gives us some food for thought when it comes to evaluating these ideas. The involvement of Christians or the church in areas of government or political issues or matters of the law. Now the commander was still in dark as to what was causing all this great rioting and desire of the Jews to execute Paul. So his responsibility was to keep the peace and um, order, peace and order in, in the temple and also in the city area. So he decided to put Paul before the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's the council that's mentioned in verse 30. And he thought, well, we'll let, uh, I'll let the uh, Sanhedrin interrogate Paul I'll be there with some of my soldiers, but I'll let them interrogate him and maybe I'll better understand what the issue is, what's causing all of this commotion. Uh, 
Because at this point, there had been no formal charges laid against Paul. And the commander of the Roman army there needed to know what crimes Paul was guilty of. If he had broken any Roman law, that would be a serious matter. Or had he just broken maybe some Jewish laws, in which case that was kind of an issue for the nation. So he brings Paul before the council in verse 30. Now notice he is released. Paul is released in verse 30. But he's still under Roman custody, but he's released from the chains or something like that. Uh, He's still under their custody. But the Romans uh, basically call for this council. Uh, The council of the Jews are coming together. They're meeting. This is not an official Sanhedrin meeting. It's kind of more like we would call it a pre-trial hearing or maybe a grand jury type meeting. That's kind of what's going on here in the commander's mind. He's calling the Sanhedrin to meet. So it's a bit of an unusual type meeting. Remember that the Sanhedrin was uh, the highest Jewish court uh, in Israel. There were about 71 members. It was presided over by the high priest, Ananias, who comes up here in a moment. And basically the Sanhedrin, or the council as it's referred to here, was uh, made up of the main religious parties, representatives of the Sadducees, that would be the priestly party, and the Pharisees. So there were Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, all among these 71 people, and the high priest was basically the president. This council ruled over basically all matters of religion as well as law, and the nation of Israel. They were kind of like the Supreme Court in interpreting law, the Congress in making laws, and the executive branch in carrying out the law. That was basically the Sanhedrin. They were uh, very much both religious leaders and political leaders, government leaders as well. So these leaders that are being, that he's addressing, Uh, It's not just over religious issues, it's over political and and legal issues as well. They were authorities basically in all things sacred and secular for the nation of Israel. Now in verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul looks intently at the council. He probably recognizes some that he knows from previous years. And he says to them, brethren... I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, what Paul is saying here is basically when he says that I have lived my life, that particular word in the Greek speaks of a life as a law-abiding citizen. So basically what he's saying to these leaders of the nation I have been a law-abiding citizen all my life up until this time. Well, obviously that provoked them because they were accusing him of breaking the law, speaking bad against the Jewish nation, defiling the temple. So these words provoked their anger very much. Now, when he says in verse uh, 1 that I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience... If you remember Paul and Paul's writings, a good conscience was very important to him. It should be to us as well, having a good conscience. A good conscience is basically one that lives in accordance with God's Word. And our conscience does not convict us of living contrary to God's Word. So Paul is affirming that as to the accusations being charged against him by the Jews, that he believed that he was totally innocent. That he had lived his life as a law-abiding citizen all the days of his, of his life up to this point. Probably in the context of what they're accusing him of. A guilty conscience, on the other hand, is a conscience that convicts us because we've broken God's law. Or we're guilty of some sin without confession, without repentance, or doing what we know we should not be doing. And then our conscience, which is God's law written upon our inner man, 
accuses us and we feel guilty about it, and that's a blessing from God. Not to, to stay in a guilty conscience, but that should lead us to repentance. But a guilty conscience burns and eats away at us until either we repent and make things right or we give ourselves over to sin. And a guilty conscience that gives itself over to sin and repeatedly suppresses the conscience turns that conscience into what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2, a seared conscience. A conscience that has been numbed by this continually repeated suppression of the moral law of God written on our hearts. And we suppress it over and over and over again until it stops alerting us to our sin. That's not a good condition. So Paul is publicly telling these Jews, I have not broken any laws. And obviously that excites their their, uh, rebellion against him. So Ananias in verse 2, who's the high priest, he's over the Sanhedrin, commands that those standing beside him strike Paul on the mouth. Now, the cancel culture is nothing new. This is the cancel culture of the first century. If you say something that the political leaders don't like, they cancel you, they silence you. And in this sense, what they did is slapping him on the face to silence him. Because they didn't like what he was saying. It disagreed with their mindset of what should be right and what should be wrong. So this is kind of like the first century version of the cancel culture. To him, Ananias, the high priest, Paul was a perverter of the Jewish religion. And he ought to be humiliated and condemned. Now, it was illegal for Ananias to do this. It was illegal for the high priest to order Paul to be slapped. This was a violation of the rights of a citizen of Israel. In fact, the Jewish law said, quote, He who strikes the cheek of one Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. So in a trial like this, this was illegal. This was wrong for the high priest to order Paul to be slapped. He should not have done it. But like the law today, oftentimes it's not applied consistently, is it? Sometimes there's a law for the elites and there's a law for the common people. Those in power back then as so today can often break the law to suit their own desires. And the result is practically is that there is a law for the rest of us and a law for the elites. So the elites can break the law when they want to. So they can go get their hair done at a saloon whenever they want. But that would be a crime for the rest of us, right? So Nancy Pelosi or Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago, you know, they can order everybody else that it's illegal for them to go get their hair done, but they could break the law whenever they want to. And that's the same thing as going back with the high priest. He knows the law, but he can break the law if he wants to because he's of the elite. And this is not right. Everyone is supposed to be held equally according to the law. And you're not supposed to have the elites and the common people with the law applied differently. That's not right. So what Ananias was doing was not right. Now Ananias, just a word of background about him, he became high priest in 47 AD. We're kind of in the middle 50s in the first century now in this text. And he received the office of high priest from Herod. He held on to it for about 12 years. History says he was one of the most disgraceful profaners of the office of the high priest that Israel had. He actually stole the tithes at the temple that were designated for the common priest. He stole them for himself. His greed became a byword. And when he was even mocked by some of his contemporaries because of his greed... He used his office to become wealthy and he used violence and even assassinations to deal with his political enemies. He was also very pro-Roman and this created intense hostilities between 
him and the National Party of the Jews so that by every standard he was a corrupt politician and he was a corrupt religious leader. King Agrippa eventually deposed him in A.D. 59 and when the war against Rome broke out in A.D. 66, the Jewish assassins murdered him. So that's this guy. That's this Ananias. So Ananias orders Paul to be slapped in verse 2 illegally. So how does Paul respond? Well, let's read about in verse 3. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Pretty stiff words from the apostle. So obviously he's pronouncing upon him that God is going to judge him. God is going to strike you. He insults him by calling him a whitewashed wall, which was kind of proverbial for, for a hypocrite. Some, a wall that's dirty and chipped and breaking on the inside or whatever, but you whitewash it so it looks good on the outside. That's a hypocrite. Dirty on the inside, but white on the outside. So he basically exposes him and really uh, speaks the true character of this man. But then in verse 4, the bystanders say, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul's response in verse 5 is interesting. He says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So what's he doing in this retraction? Well, when he says, I was not aware that he was a high priest, that can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, some commentators say that you know Paul had been away for so long maybe he didn't actually know the high priest personally or he didn't recognize him some say Edersheim Alfred Edersheim one of the uh, scholars Jewish scholars his view is that maybe since this was a, an unusual meeting of the council not a formal regularly called council by the high priest but rather as a council meeting called by the by the commander of the Roman army that this was an unusual type meeting and maybe the high priest didn't have his normal official robes on or something like that clothes on um, so the fact that he says he didn't recognize him could be explained by maybe genuinely he didn't really know or know that the guy who ordered him to be slapped was the high priest that's one way to explain his words that he really didn't uh, recognize the high priest. Another interpretation is that um, he's really speaking sarcastically. In other words, he's saying, I didn't recognize him to be the high priest because he's not acting like a high priest. A high priest is a stand for the law. He's ordered me to be struck in contrary to the law. He, I, I don't recognize him as a high priest because his actions are violating the position of his office. So he's speaking sarcastically. Calvin actually preferred that view. So in effect, what Paul is using is sarcasm to point out that, that Ananias is not a qualified high priest. He came into his office by bribery and corruption and the Jewish rabbis actually said that whoever does so is neither a judge nor to be honored as one. So maybe Paul is speaking sarcastically. Or the third way to interpret these words of verse 5, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. And then he quotes Scripture is that Paul just admits that he lost his temper. That his offense was that he retaliated. He was slapped and he immediately retaliated in anger. And I think that could equally be the case as well. Uh, for example, the Scriptures certainly speak, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Christ said, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I really think that's there's more to say on that verse than just that, but moving on, 1 Peter 3.9 says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So 
I can understand. Paul's a, a, a man like we are. He has a nature like we are. I mean, he blew it here possibly. He just spoke in anger. But the, but the other issue is, did he have the right to confront the injustice that had just happened? And this is another issue. Maybe the way he addressed it was, was wrong, and he needed to apologize for that. But was it wrong for him to confront the injustice that had just happened to him? And to call a sin a sin, even when it's a political leader or a religious leader? Was it wrong for him to speak out at all. Well, let's, uh, let's look at how Christ handled a similar situation. When Christ was before Pilate, or actually when, when Christ stood before uh, the high priest in John chapter 18, the high priest questioned Jesus about His disciples. This is during His his trial, this is after Jesus has been arrested and he's now taken to the helm of, of uh, Annas and then Caiaphas. So the high priest is asking him about his teaching and Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them and know what I said. Then he said this. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, when he said this, one of the officials standing nearby struck Jesus. Okay, so Jesus now is being struck just like Paul was struck. And they said to Jesus, is that the way you answer the high priest? Very similar situations here. How did Jesus answer? Well, he said, if I've spoken wrongly, tell of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, he still addressed the injustice of what they did to him. But his tone was a little bit more respectful. It was a little bit more courteous in a certain sense, you could say, than what Paul's was. That's why Peter, probably with this in mind, said in 1 Peter 2.23 that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So I think possibly when Paul says back in verse 5, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, that he could have allowed his anger to get the better of him. And then he quotes Scripture to remind himself and to correct himself when he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now what does that mean? You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, this is actually a quotation from uh, Exodus. It comes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. that says, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. And basically what that Law says is that in general, we are not to curse our rulers. Well, what does it mean to curse them? Well, that would be to unjustly bring down God's judgment upon them or some verdict of that. I mean, now the prophets and other people did bring curses, the the judgments of God upon the rulers of their day. But in general, we're to respect our civil authorities, certainly. To speak evil of our rulers would be to lie about them, to say something that's not right about them, or in some way just to, to bear false witness against them, breaking the ninth commandment, for example. So all of that is understood. And Paul is probably just admitting there may have been some Christians in that audience there at the council who had become to faith and still were wrestling with Paul's position on some of these things. And maybe Paul is uh, apologizing and bringing in Scripture to let them know that, look, hey, if I violated it, I acknowledge that I shouldn't be speaking evil against a ruler of God's people. And maybe he got carried away and he's admitting that in one degree or another. But that, that commandment does not in any way say that we cannot speak the truth about our rulers. Don't speak evil against them. Don't lie about them. Don't distort what they stand for. But it's not in any way saying that you can't say anything about our rulers. Or that we can't address the issues that are 
in our culture today. So, by way of application, because I'm interested in trying to apply all this, let me back up and just say, who is it in our culture today that wants to, to slap or silence us in the 21st century? There are forces out there that if you speak your mind on an issue like Paul did, even though he may have done it sinfully or too much anger mixed in and was slapped for it, that they would want to slap us as well. Who wants to slap us today to silence us for expressing our conscience? And of course, he was slapped by primarily because he was expressing his conscience, his convictions that he was a law-abiding citizen. And he got slapped for it. Of course, his response to that maybe could be improved. But people want to slap us for just speaking our convictions today. I mean, uh, you speak out wrongly on, on certain issues today and you're likely to be... Uh, to have people want to slap you. Again, last week we talked about the racial wars going on. If, if I as a white man stand up and affirm I in good conscience am not a racist, there are people that will want to slap me because they think I am a racist to the core and they would want to silence me and slap me in my good conscience when I affirm that I don't believe that I'm a racist. Or speak out on the LGBTQ matters or social justice or whatever. Or if I say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There's no other religion, no other way to, to have your sins forgiven other than faith alone in Christ alone. There are forces that would want to slap our face and silence us today. That's the social uh, situation that we're in. Social media today, of course, is... Uh, canceling is involved in the cancel culture of our own day and age. Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube. There are many things you can't say today because people want to slap you. They want to silence you because they don't like us speaking out in terms of what our conscience directs us to believe. I've just uh, recently heard of uh, Breitbart, which is a conservative website, says their traffic on Google is down 99.7% since 2016. So within the last four years, Google has basically slapped this conservative news uh, organization and silenced them because they won't allow their, uh, their information to come up on a Google search. So Google is deliberately working to interfere with the election. But the whole issue here is, is if you say the wrong thing today, you'll be slapped. You know, if you come out and, and uh, say anything bad about the World Health Organization today, you get canceled on social media. They jerk you down. Uh, sermons have been jerked down and taken off the internet because we're speaking our conscience of what we believe the Bible teaches on things. You express conservative ideas, you get canceled. Statues even get slapped or canceled today. Or spray painted or vandalized or pulled down. So that free speech is evaporating quickly. And really this was an attack on the Apostle Paul. You don't have the freedom to speak your mind and speak your conscience in front of this council. And that's what's going on today. So I think that's an interesting issue because our culture is basically becoming slap happy. So how should we respond? Well, we read how Paul responded in verse 5. Or actually in verse uh, 3. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? So that's how Paul responded when they were trying to silence him for speaking his conscience to political and religious leaders in, in the public forum, if you will, that's how he responded. And then later he corrected himself. But how should we respond? That's kind of the point that I think is relevant for us in making an application today. Does that mean that we cannot tell the truth about our rulers? That we cannot speak our conscience of what is right and wrong? Are we guilty of speaking evil when we tell the truth about our leaders, about political positions or whatever? 
And what I believe is that Christians have every right to evaluate what's going on in our culture and compare it with Scripture, to be informed and involved in these areas, and to have the freedom to speak out as an individual, as a church, behind this pulpit. And many are uncomfortable with that position. I understand that. For many people, they think that religion and politics should not mix at all. That Christians should hold their convictions silently and privately in their home, hold them in the church, but not to bring them out in the public foray. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is to quickly move through a number of reasons why I think Christians have the right to address political issues. Because as we're moving up to an election um, here in November, I think there are some issues that we need to address. That, and the first reason why I think we have the right to address these issues is because most political issues are biblical issues, right? And if you're saying that I can't address it because it's a political issue, but if it's a biblical issue, I have every right to address it. And you do too. Whether it's an issue of abortion, or whether it's the gay rights or gay marriage, those issues. I mean, the Bible addresses all these issues. And if the Bible addresses it, I don't care if it's a political issue or not. We have the right to express what we believe the Bible teaches on these things. So I think every believer has the right to address them because most of these issues, economic issues and all these other issues, you can, you can find much that the Bible says about these issues as well. So I think we have the right to do it because of that. Secondly, God ordained government and it's accountable to Him. Paul in Romans 13 says that, you know, government is established by God. They are a minister of God for good and for evil. Now, who determines what is good and what is evil? Does our culture determine that? No, God does ultimately. And government is going to be held accountable because they are supposed to be a minister of God to you for good and to a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I'm going to raise this up just a hair. So I think because government is established by God and those rulers, good and bad, are there by God's sovereign decree, but yet we still have the right to uh, speak truth to them. Remember in John 19, verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, yeah, you have authority over me because God has placed you there. And then he went on to say, and that's why the people who delivered me over to you, the person who delivered me over to you will have the greater, has the greater sin. Pilate, what you're doing is sin. The one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. He was speaking truth to Pilate in that situation. So there is, uh, in the example of our Lord, certainly the right to speak truth. What about number three? Christ strongly rebuked evil leaders. And this comes from Matthew 23. There's about eight woes in Matthew 23 that Jesus pronounced on uh, the religious leaders. I'll just read a few of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now remember these scribes and Pharisees, many of them are in the Sanhedrin. They're involved in religious matters, government, legal matters as well. You shut off the kingdom of God from people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I mean, here's the gentle, loving Lord Jesus speaking truth to the leaders, religious and civic leaders. These guys were, were both. Woe to you, blind guides, fools who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. But there's more. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, Paul called Ananias, a high priest, a whitewashed wall, 
Jesus is calling all of these scribes and Pharisees a whitewashed tomb, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. There is a time when these kinds of expressions are biblical and God-honoring. Right? Jesus is saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Sometimes Jesus spoke very, should we say, tough words to the leaders in His community. Both religious and civic leaders. How about this? uh, When Jesus, Pharisees approached Him and said, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. Third day I'll reach my goal. So He calls Herod a fox. Not the greatest compliment in the world. Fox is a cunning and crafty animal, an opportunist, a thief, destructive to vineyards, being a plunderer of ripe grapes, hunts at night, taking poultry and young livestock. That's a fox. Jesus called Herod a fox. So sometimes it's God honoring to speak truth. Now, he didn't speak evil. He spoke the truth. There's a difference here. A fourth reason why I think Christians have the right to speak up on political issues As John the Baptist rebuked King Herod, this would be Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, who who was reprimanded by John the Baptist because of his adultery with his brother's wife. And also because, notice what it says here, because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So John the Baptist didn't just confront Herod on his adultery, but on all the wicked things that he had done. Now this was... A prophet of God speaking against the king of the nation. A political ruler. And of course he paid a price for that because Herod locked him up and eventually had him beheaded. I think a fifth reason is our call as disciples. We're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Light of the world means we need to be preaching Christ. We need to be preaching the gospel to the, to the world in darkness. But what's the function of being the salt of the earth? Salt was, was used primarily for you rub it into meat and you try to, to uh, prevent the further growth of rot and decay. We're to be the salt of the earth. So I think that we're to have an influence in our society to expose the rot and hopefully have a sanctifying influence to prevent its spread or growth. We're to be the salt of the earth. Salt was used in that way. So I think that means we have the opportunity and the responsibility to address issues, even if they're political issues, that are bringing uh, judgment and corruption into our society. Number six, the teaching ministry of the church certainly includes teaching on government, teaching on moral values. Uh, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable the Bible has a lot to say about government. The, the Bible has a lot to say about the nature of rulers. I mean, the whole Old Testament. I mean, look at how all the interaction with the prophets and the kings. Read the book of Proverbs. Look, uh, there's a lot in the Bible about godly government, principles of government, what makes a ruler a, a righteous and a godly ruler, what makes one a disgrace. There's much in the Bible. And our responsibility, this is Paul in Acts 20, addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he's telling the church leaders at Ephesus, look, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Or the King James says, the whole counsel of God. In other words, I taught you the whole gamut of what's found in the Word of God. Okay? So all of that, if it's found in Scripture, then we have every right to teach it and to proclaim it. It's part of the whole counsel of God. And much of politics overlaps in the area of the whole counsel of God. So we have every right to address it. Number seven, the chief end of man. 
Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I think this is another aspect in which Christians have the right to be informed on political issues and be involved and express our views on them because we are called to glorify God in every area of our life, right? So Christ is to be Lord over every area of your life. So that means that when I go in and vote as a citizen, we each have a dual citizenship as a believer. We're a citizen of the country in which we're a citizen of. And also we're a citizen of heaven. Our highest and greatest citizenship in heaven. But when I go into the voting booth to fulfill my responsibilities, then I need to vote what I think is biblical. I need to vote biblical values. Because in everything I do, I should do for the glory of God. So I need to vote for the glory of God. Which means I need to bring biblical values into the voting booth with me. Why? Because again, Christ would be Lord over every area of our life. Now sadly, within the church, there's such a thing, uh, there's a worldview out there that talks about the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is your values. The lower story is so-called facts and science and things like that. And there's this notion that Christians, we just keep our faith in the upper story of values, personal, private convictions. But that's really not biblical. Because our values, the Word of God, the glory of God, should penetrate into every area of our life. Your vocation, the work that you do, you do it to the glory of God, right? Recreation, whatever you do, whatever it is, you do to the glory of God. Every area of our life should be submitted to the goal of glorifying God. And that involves our thinking about uh, our culture and politics and everything else. We should not compartmentalize our life into sacred and secular. The sacred should penetrate all of life. And I think many Christians need to repent before God because we've adopted this thing on Sundays, I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to sing the the great hymns of the faith and read the Bible and do those things. But the rest of the week, I'm just going to do and act and believe and think however I want to do. And that is unbiblical. And yet many Christians, I think, have kind of bought into that, unfortunately. As a Christian, I'm obligated to believe what God says is true in the Bible, not what I want to be true. It doesn't matter what your feelings think or what your own mind thinks. If God has spoken on it, that becomes truth for me. That is God's truth. So we're to bring every area of our life under the glory of God. And that means that politics, government, all that's out there. I'm striving to bring all things that touch my life under the, uh, the goal of the glory of God. An eighth reason why I think, and there's ten, I'm, I'm trying to rush through it real quick. Number eight is that our civic duty as American citizens should make us want to bring our faith and our values into the political realm. Christ, again, commanded us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I've quoted this from time to time, but He tells us, look, you need to obey your Caesar. Okay, Caesar is your government. Caesar is the authority in your government, you could say. So our government is quite different, thank God, from the Roman government because we have a, we have a representational republic, if you will. And we are all supposed to vote. We're to elect those two who are supposed to represent our values and our beliefs, Right? So as rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's means that my Caesar says that as a citizen, I need to fulfill my responsibilities as a citizen and go vote. By the way, if you have not, uh, if you have not signed up to vote, I've got applications that you can uh, sign up to, to be able to vote. They're out in the foyer. If you have not done that or have not voted, you need to. 
is part of your responsibility unto Caesar. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. You need to be voting in November. And you need to be able to make sure you've signed up to be able to vote. And I've got there again, there's applications uh, out in the foyer. So our civic duty as American citizens, I think, also gives us that responsibility to be involved in these things. Number nine, quickly, Paul tells the Ephesian church, don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Now what's Paul talking about in Ephesians 5? He's not talking about the darkness in the church. He's talking about the darkness in the world. He's saying don't participate in their unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather even expose them. Well, how can I expose them if I don't speak up? How can I expose the darkness if I just keep all my little private views to myself? Or to expose them. Now I understand that God gives us all different interests in these things. I'm not trying to, to, to force anyone into one particular mold or how they do this, but it certainly gives us the, uh, the reason to be able to stand up and speak against the unfruitful deeds of darkness in our culture, whether it's in politics or government or anything else. And finally, Reformed theology as a church that identifies with Reformed theology in so many ways. Uh, Reformed theology has always believed that Christ is Lord over all and always understood that the church has a role in speaking truth to our government. Look at Calvin in Geneva. Look at all these other uh, aspects where the Protestant Reformation grew up. Uh, they sense the importance of the church having a voice to their government leaders. Now, there's different spheres of sovereignty here, um, that, but uh, still there is influence that should be there. Abraham Kuyper, one of the uh, Dutch Reformed theologians who became the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, is famous for this quote when he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not say mine. And that means He is sovereign over government. He's sovereign over all of life in all areas in all the universe. Christ is sovereign. And Reformed theology has always acknowledged that. He's Lord over all. And as a Christian living in this world as part of my uh, responsibility to further the gospel first and foremost, but also to stand for the moral values that the gospel presses upon us. John MacArthur has uh, gone through a lot lately in his own uh, understanding of the Christian's involvement in politics. He used to not be so much. Uh, if you've heard John MacArthur over the years, he was more critical of this, but I think because of the providence of God, he's, he's uh, modified some of his views. But this is what he said not too long ago. As a Christian, I must take every possible approach to uphold righteousness in a society. So when something comes up that gives me an opportunity to vote for righteousness, to vote for the things that honor God, to vote for things that protect people from evil, I as a Christian have to vote what I think fits the biblical standard. And I totally applaud him for this. And I think that every Christian should take this to heart. If we do not, then we run the risk of what's happening to Germany and with Nazism and Adolf Hitler rising to power. And most within the church in Germany stuck their head in the sand. Oh, Hitler isn't that bad. Actually, he professes to be a Christian or whatever. And they looked the other way. They didn't address the slaughter of Jews, the concentration camps, all the evil that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were doing within Germany. And most of the pastors... And the Lutheran church were just looking the other way. And they were actually identifying with the Nazi party. Many of them were. But not this man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A Lutheran pastor who saw what the government was doing. The evil. How atrocious it was. The murdering of innocent people just because they were, they were racially different. 
and they weren't of this Aryan whiteness stuff. But he saw that that was evil and he spoke out against it. And eventually he was arrested and thrown into prison. And he stayed there for a good period of time. And when the Allies started marching through Germany, two weeks before they got to the place where he was imprisoned, two weeks before they arrived at that place, they executed Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he died. Like John the Baptist, there's a price to pay for speaking up against the civil authorities when you're speaking truth about the wrong that they're doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, before he died, said silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And so I think that Christians have every right to be informed and seeking God's wisdom and guidance to speak up on these issues when the time is right. But do it in a God-honoring way because the Scriptures address all areas of life and uh, we have that right in our own way as God leads us individually to certainly be informed and to express ourselves, whether it's to a friend or on a more public stage as God leads us individually. So this is my conviction. I wanted to kind of quickly go over this because if I address issues that are political leading up to the election, I want you to know that my conviction is we have the right to do that. Even behind this pulpit, we have the right to do it. I feel, feel no threat from the Johnson Amendment. It's a paper lion. No one's ever, no church has ever lost its 501c3 uh, tax exempt status because of speaking up on these things. So, having said all of that, I want to transition now because having granted that I believe that we have the right to address these issues, the only message that can change hearts and forgive sins or give hope to the sinner is the message of Christ crucified, it's the gospel. This is always supposed to be our priority message to the world. It's foolishness to the world to speak of Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And we are sinners who live in a sinful world, but we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive us of our sins, to change us, and to use us for His glory as long as He gives us breath and life in this world. So as we reflect upon His love for us, oh God, stir up our love for Him that we might stand for Him and be the light of the world and the salt of the earth for the glory of our Father and of our Savior. For we ask it in His name. Amen.